The Chet Kavik Podcast Network. Welcome to Sports Cars, a podcast where Chicago sports broadcasting pioneer and a national legal expert get into the legal goings of sports. And now your hosts, Chet Kavik and Lester Munson. All these years you thought that sports was the essence of virginity. Well, we got news for you. Uh, it ain't. How you doing, everybody? I'm Chet Kopic, along with uh, ESPN legal expert Lester Munson. We thought today, in the spirit of the holiday season, <laughs> why not talk about the greatest scandals in the history of sports? And, you know, Lester, uh, right off the top, it's kind of interesting. Your your list of uh, uh, of scandals is very, very intriguing. But how can you leave Peter Edward Rose off of your, your all-time list of uh, crumb bums? Pete Rose, uh, I'm putting down in acute uh, chronic disease category. <laughs> if ever there was a compulsive gambler, it was Pete Rose. I feel bad about what he did to himself, what he did to his family. There's no question, though, that betting against your team and, as we now know, uh, betting for your team as a manager in Major League Baseball is certainly grounds for a lifetime ban and ought to be probably on the list. It was the next one on my list. You have a great story involving John Dowd, the guy who was investigating <laughs> Peter Edward Rose. I mean, you're on his back for, for roughly two years, begging him to finally give you the knowledge that Rose actually bet against the Reds. Explain what, what transpired and what went down. If you go through the Dowd Report, it's 11 volumes. It's about 37 inches long on your bookshelf. If you go through the report, you see that there was a pattern to Rose's betting. Dowd documented close to 800 different bets on baseball games in the report. He had the phone records. He had notes from the bookies. Everybody that Rose bet with turned against him and gave evidence to Dowd. But Dowd had very high standards for what he would say. And all of us who do investigative journalism in sports, we wanted to know one thing. Did he, as manager, ever bet against his own team? Dowd left that out of his report. He didn't say one way or the other. I pursued him, as you mentioned, for two years. John, you got to help me here. I know he bet against the Reds. How can I track this down? He wouldn't talk about it on the record. He had files stashed in his basement. I said, I'll go through the files. He wouldn't let me do that. And then one day, he, he's a luncheon speaker at one of these Bill James Sabermetrics groups in Washington, D.C., certified Boy, baseball like wackos. <laughs> yeah, they're there talking about baseball numbers. And he then explained how he knew that Rose had bet against the Reds twice in San Diego during that fateful year not knowing, John Dowd not knowing, a Wall Street Journal guy was sitting in the audience. So the story that I and others pursued for two years fell into the lap of the Wall Street Journal guy, and that's how we finally find out that Rose did, at least on those two occasions, bet against his team. Lester, let me give you the essence of the uh, conflict that is Peter Edward Rose. The sports book at Caesars Palace will not allow television cameras on the premises if Rose is inside the book. Nevertheless, Rose is right downstairs at the Field of Dreams signing autographs, you know, 10, 12 days every month. I mean, if that isn't the essence of Pete Rose, I don't know what is. 
All I can say is, if he's making a living signing his autograph, which of course is what he is, it's a good thing his name is Pete Rose and not, let's say, Nomar Garcia Para. As Pete Rose, he can sign 50 autographs a minute. As Nomar, he could probably only sign five autographs every five minutes. So good uh, for him. You also left out uh, uh, Tonya Harding and her, uh, her gang of uh, Boy Scouts putting the whack on uh, Nancy Kerrigan at the Cobo Arena in Detroit. Are you, are you saving Tonya for the, uh, for the uh, trailer park category? <laughs> yes, we have a trailer park category in sports, tabloid sports, we're going to call it that. I'm working on that. I have big files on it. That was one of the great stories of all time, Tonya Harding. Just as you thought the story had hit bottom, it would fall off the edge again. <laughs> Unbelievable what went on in that story. I was in Portland for six weeks. Poor Tanya. There's no question she could skate. I watched her practice in this public rink. You could tell by the sound of her skates on the ice that she was something special, and she could leap five feet into the air. It was unbelievable what she could do. But what a life she had. The poor thing. I mean, I, the, the, I don't see it. I, I know some people went to jail. I know they should not have attacked Nancy Kerrigan. I'm not sure Tanya knew those guys were doing that. They were her friends, no question about it. Did they check in with her? I don't think so. I've always maintained, going back to Lillehammer, and that particular <laughs> Olympiad on that Friday night with Vern Lundquist behind the microphone, oh. when both Kerrigan and Tanya Harding were skating. And Harding, of course, had trouble with her skates, and her outfit looked like she bought it at a, at a mm-hmm. Salvation Army retail store. Um, that NBC should have written Harding a check for a million bucks for all the extra viewers she bought to the table. I am sure that that entire episode tripled that audience. Everybody wanted to see what would happen. Uh, it was one of the great stories of all time, no question about it. And it's a, sh- it's a shame that Tanya did not do better in those Olympics. She was a great skater. She has become this kind of toxic personality, but she really could do some things on the ice. Now, uh, on your all-time list, people really don't realize what a snake and how venomous this SOB was. Alan Eagleson, former head of the NHL Players Association, a guy who was responsible for putting together games between the U.S. and the old Soviet Union. He's number one on your all-time bum list. He is number one on my list. He's the biggest fraud in the history of sports. In the column I have up at ESPN dot com right now he's my nominee that scandal is my nominee for the worst in the history of sports this guy betrayed his own clients his players he founded the union and then made every single transaction in the union a profit center for himself the health insurance the life insurance every the the rent for the office every single thing that that union did became a profit to alan to alan eagleson and he walked around like this great Canadian patriot. Just like you say, Chet, he organized the Canada mm-hmm. Cup, and he's f- walking around on the ice, literally wrapped in the Canadian flag because he stood up to the Russians. So it took a long time to finally bring him into the courthouse and face the music. He was charged in Canada. He was charged with crimes in the United States. He went to the penitentiary in Ontario, and I think he's the only guy in the history of sports removed from a Hall of Fame for misconduct. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> that's, that's that's a very very special achievement. <laughs> you is. know what? You know what uh, amazed me about Alan Eagleson is during the tenure when he's running. 
the NHLPA, the players all called him the Eagle. Yeah. And Lester, they did it with such reference you would have sworn they were talking about the babe in swaddling clothes. That, that's exactly the problem. I was working on those stories when I was at Sports Illustrated, uh, when I was on the National Sports Daily, when you were in Canada inquiring about Alan Eagleson. You knew he was a total fraud. You knew you were on the edge of felony material, and you everybody would look at you like you were some sort of communist who sneaked in from Romania to subvert the Canadian government. I mean, it, this guy had standing like nobody else. Incredible. All right, uh, baseball steroid era. You mm-hmm. have uh, listed it uh, number two, and uh, I, I find that intriguing for a couple of reasons. Number one, it obviously redefined the landscape, the texture of Major League Baseball. It's a black eye for baseball. But in my opinion, the steroid era is not over because there are still individuals playing Major League Baseball who, uh, with their uh, providers, are one step ahead of the testing process. I don't have any doubt about it. If you have a biochemistry major on your payroll, which when you're a $10 million ball player, you can do very easily, you're going to stay ahead of the testing process. You not only know how to find things that will not test, you know how to cover up what you are using. It's a a contest of science geeks and baseball's testers, uh, I think, have been losing for five or six years. Now, uh, we have Southern Methodist, the first uh, university to uh, be given the death penalty by the NCAA for a football program run by uh, by Forrest Gregg, was there anybody on the SMU football team who was not being paid, and if so, why? <laughs> <laughs> and can that person who was not paid now sue for back pay? <laughs> I would say that he probably could, and the NCAA would order SMU to pay him. They want to have equal opportunity within these scandals. That was... Probably in college sports, that, that's it. That, that is the worst one ever. They richly deserved the death penalty. Um, I thought maybe at the time it wasn't even long enough, but Forrest Gregg, as we know, an outlaw coach with the Packers, an outlaw coach at SMU. When you first became aware of SMU and you began to dig into the story, how shocked were you? I, I, I was shocked. I, for some reason, the word Methodist at SMU threw me off. <laughs> I, 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 for some reason, thought this is a program that maybe they made a few mistakes, but on average and as an entire program, they were trying to do the right thing. Well, they were not. They were not. It was corrupt from top to bottom. It took me a while to catch on to that. It took a lot of us uh, a little while to catch on to that. So it did come as a bit of a surprise to me. All right. Uh, the Salt Lake Olympic Games. The land of the free, the home of the fix, the home of the cash grab. What always amazed me about about Salt Lake in the Olympics is this. Nobody went down. No. Nobody ever served a day of jail time. And there were, what, 2,000 fixes involved? They, they bought every vote they could find. They spent $3 million on bribes, and, and that is not even a complete list. There were two guys charged with crimes a guy named Welch and a guy named Johnson. They were the top people at the bid committee, the ones who were trying to get the Olympics for Salt Lake. They went to trial, and a judge in Salt Lake heard all the evidence. It was overwhelming evidence. There were levels of corruption there that I had never seen, and I was a lawyer in the Circuit Court of Cook County. I'm a connoisseur (laughs) of corruption. That's that's a big statement. (laughs) I understand what corruption is. I saw some things that were new to me. And the judge at the end of the case said, well... 
They got the Olympics for Salt Lake. We wanted the Olympics. Therefore, it's not a crime. Boom. He let them go. They walked away. What'd they do? Buy the judge? (laughs) (laughs) The judge was a pillar of the Salt Lake establishment. He's a deacon in the Mormon church. He and Senator Orrin Hatch did their mission, their two-year Mormon mission together. So they, they knew that they should have the Olympics in Salt Lake, and they did whatever it took, and they got away with it. You know what? Um, Ryan and Daly could have learned a lot from Salt Lake. <laughs> if they had been smart, they would have hired those guys, Welch and Johnson. <laughs> they are they know how to get votes. <laughs> All right. Um, it wouldn't be complete without the Black Sox scandal. Going back to uh, 1919, uh, the scandal basically breaks, if I'm not mistaken, in September of 1920. Right. You have eight ball players who were indicted among them among them shoeless Joe Jackson. And remarkably, once again, the eight ball players who were involved, Shikati, Risberg, Buck Weaver, etc., etc., nobody ever did any jail time. No, they didn't. And as as we look back on it now, you can see why these guys uh Comiskey treated them very badly. The owner was very stingy. Uh, it was very easy for them to understand how working with gamblers is going to get them three times the money they're going to get pay, playing honest baseball. There were people on the team who knew what the eight guys were doing, and they did not report this to the Lords of Baseball. Even they got in trouble. But I think most people who've looked back on this, there's the great book, uh, Eight Men Out, most people who look back on this can see that there was a bit of injustice here in the lifetime bans of some of those players. Well, I mean, for example, uh, a guy like Shoeless Joe Jackson, he had 375 in that World Series. Jackson was illiterate. Yeah. Today, today, Lester, he not only wouldn't have been charged, he probably would have been named American League Most Valuable Player. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then they give him the Nobel Prize. The, the, uh, that was probably an injustice. Uh, he was banned for life. Now his life is over. He's not banned anymore. You think they could put him in the Hall of Fame? But but he when you hit 375 in the World Series, it's hard to say you were throwing games. You know, <clears throat> look at the era we're in now. I mean, think about 1919. You got you got Ring Lardner in Chicago. You got a couple of reporters who are working on the story. If there was even the slightest hint that a World Series game was bought, that a pitcher might have been bought, Lester. It, it couldn't happen in no. today's in today's media era. It could not happen because there are just too many outlets that would would just leap on the story. And I mean that that forgives television, which would be too busy showing you know an elephant on roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Or close ups of the pitcher as he walks around the mound stalling for the next pitch. My favorite. Um, but I think now that it would be almost impossible to pull this off. There is a great scandal brewing in Europe right now. This could be the biggest one of them all. 200 soccer games in which the outcomes were influenced by gamblers. Some of these are at the Champions League level, three of them. And there's a German police force that is looking into this. They've arrested 15 people. And right away, it's in all the European papers. It's in the Financial Times, the, the English paper that comes over here. And just as you say, Chet, there's no way this kind of stuff can last and can be secret for any length of time. You know, Lester, uh, <clears throat> in closing, the reason soccer is not big in the States, very, very simple. Everybody gambles on pro football. Yeah. Why do you have Monday night football? Why do you have Thursday night football? It's because people gamble. They drive the right. television numbers. 
To the best of my knowledge, nobody gambles on the Chicago Fire. <laughs> I don't think so. There's heavy gambling on European soccer. There's, oddly enough, a lot of Asian gambling on European soccer. But you're right. Nobody Here in the United States, it has never caught hold as a gambling sport, and it never will. I mean, it's been a long time since I heard of anybody flying out to... Uh, uh, Las Vegas to go to the Rio to bet, uh, you know, to bet the kids lunch money on Manchester United against Leeds. Right. right. I, if you find that guy, let us know out there, somebody. He is Lester Munson, the uh, godfather of all legal experts in sports with ESPN. I'm Chet Kopic. Take care of yourself. We will be back in seven days. So long, everybody.